Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome back to the Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. Why can't we be more like the Germans? It's been a steady refrain since the mid-70s when stereotypical German efficiency put our own lead-footed industries to shame, right up to the present day when Merkel's Germany takes a world-leading role that Britain envies yet fails to emulate. Progressives admire Germany's inclusive workplace culture and their multiculturalism. Conservatives can't get enough of their stability and their productivity, yet somehow Britain can't stop seeing Germany both as a powerful threat and a weakling will crumble before us once they realise that we buy their cars. And don't get me started on Britain's sad obsession with world wars and world cups. The author and broadcaster John Kampfner is a confirmed Germanophile. He started his career reporting from East Berlin for The Telegraph before going on to report on politics for the BBC and the FT and edit The New Statesman. His new book is called Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country, and it's a highly entertaining mix of memoir, reportage, history, and polemic. He's here with me today. Hello, John. How are you? Hi there, Andrew. I'm very well, and you have to be pretty well if you're in Berlin, because things are functioning pretty well. Well, yes, I'm, I'm green with envy, because you're actually live from, from Berlin uh, right now. Which bit of Berlin? What could you see out of your window? Actually, I'm staying at a, 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 an apartment that friends, actually English friends, uh, let me use. It's in quite a quiet area of Charlottenburg. It's the sort of how can I say, it's a sort of bell-sized park of, uh, <laughs> of Berlin. It's kind of a bit old, and uh, people are all very nice, but it's a bit staid. It's, it's not the happening part. But uh, I would absolutely give my left leg for a bit of staid right now, the way things are going on around here. The extent to which we in Britain don't understand our most powerful neighbour, and possibly soon our most powerful rival, is quite scandalous. And We've been wondering why the Germans do it better for as long as I've been alive, really. What made you want to write this book now? Well, I suppose it was unfinished business, really. I was um, a correspondent, as you were mentioning, in, in Bonn and then in East Berlin, where I watched the wall came down. I was actually accredited to the GDR. I still have my old uh, press pass from those days. And so I saw the seismic events and I saw the new Germany beginning, uh, warts and all, with the many problems that it had. And then I, I moved on and went to other places. But I've always kept an eye on this place. And I just thought, as we were mired in Brexit mayhem, that it was time to go back and really with a, a cold, fresh eye, take a look at the place and see what it is about this place that does well and what it is that doesn't do so well. And obviously the title is incredibly binary, but you, you're not going to say, you're not going to write a book with a title that says sort of, why the <laughs> Germans do it better most of the time in most ways, you know, that wouldn't sell so well. Um, so there are things wrong with this place, but by, you know, by God, compared to the to the clown country that Johnson's Britain now is. It's it's really, I think even in Britain, even Romaniacs don't quite get a sense, and sorry to depress everyone, just how much now Britain is held in disrepute. Well, yes, and perhaps we can go on to that a little bit later, but I wanted to ask you, looking afresh, as you say, with, with cold eyes, did you perhaps realise things about Germany that you hadn't uh, come across in your previous close-up examinations of the country, looking at, at it in the round, in that context of, you know, the view from clown country, as it were? 
Yeah, I mean, certain things, I mean, yeah, 30 years, you know, since the war came down, everybody um, is is marking that occasion now. And of course, lots of things have changed. Um, many of the essentials haven't. And I think the thing that, uh, it's not just Brits, but foreigners don't quite get about Germany is, yeah, they you know, all the old cliches are true, that they are more efficient, they are more law-abiding, which can get really annoying at times. Um, things do generally work. But the, the bit of Germany, the good bit that isn't quite understood, is the sort of sense of social cohesion. There's much less, um, they, you know, they call it uh, the elbow society, the sort of dog eats dog, is not particularly uh, well regarded here. Uh, it's not regarded as cool if you've got cash to sort of splash it around. It's much more of a sense of sort of communitarianism. It's almost that sort of original labor or new labor idea of people kind of looking after each other in uh, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. Uh, and that's the side of things. I think it's the sort of the, the soft society side of things that people don't quite appreciate enough. The book mixes your own experience of living in Germany with the history of, of, of the post-war state. And the entire thing of division and reunification is almost the crucible that makes modern Germany. When you were in East Germany, was there a sense amongst East Germans that, that this is going to end one day? Or did, did DDR people think this is the way life is? Life is fixed forever like that? Well, I was only there uh, in terms of living right towards the end. Things were happening. It was, you could see it was disintegrating. But, um, and you knew that something was going to happen, something was going to change. But it's, I think it's a, a classic piece of sort of lazy retrospective history to think it was inevitable that it would happen as peacefully as it did. And not a single person died. Okay, there was police beating people up at demos and all that sort of thing. But it was just remarkable. And it could have been the other way because right at the time I was in this church called the Gethsemane Church in Berlin, which was really the, the center of the uh, dissident struggle against the regime. Uh, the more famous one was in Leipzig called the Nikolai Church. But I was, I was in Berlin watching this and people were genuinely scared of what they called the Chinese solution because the East German leadership had openly praised the Chinese regime, which only a couple of months earlier had cracked down with tanks on the protesters at Tiananmen Square. So it could have gone that way. And I think it's remarkable what happened, both in terms of the wall and for all the many complaints that people have. And boy, do they. Germans love to complain and they love to say things aren't right. It's a classic half-empty uh, mindset. <laughs> but, you know, and things did go wrong. Privatization was too quick. There's quite an arrogance of... Westerners just sort of waltzing in and telling people what to do. There aren't enough East Germans who have reached top positions with the honourable exception of Angela Merkel and a few others. Uh, but for all those mistakes, I still struggle to find any country that could have done anything like this with as little damage as has happened. It's interesting that you said the Germans are a, are a glass half full country because that's something I would never have thought. We in Britain have a hopelessly sketchy idea of both of post-war German history and of what the Germans are really like. What, what do you think the, the biggest British misconception about the Germans and the German system is? Well, I think, I mean, you said it in your introduction, we don't like it when they do well and we sneer at them when they don't do so well. Um, we want them to pull their weight, but we don't want them to pull, you know, to, to throw their weight around. We haven't worked out what it is. We're mired in sort of rural Britannia nonsense. I mean, 
Germans were just watching with, oh my God, whatever next from Britain when it was front page news, whether or not you could sing Rule Britannia on the last day of the proms. And I mean, that's the thing about Germany. The war, in my view, completely paralyzes Britain, not just the war, but the empire. We're stuck in the past. We can't almost get, we can't get rid of the past because it's our balm against the the future now. It's it's kind of what keeps us going as we sort of wallow in self-destruction and things going wrong. We only have the past to cling to. Germany, by complete contrast, has no past to, to cling to. I mean, it's got older past and lots of great writers, Goethe and Schiller, and uh, some great things from sort of uh, earlier times. But really, from the latter part of the 19th century uh, until 1945, it's got nothing it's proud of, and it knows it presided over the Holocaust and, and the Second World War. So it can't look backwards, and so it looks forwards and it's just got that sense of how can we build a better society? How can we, and this I think is the danger, because Germans are also in some ways paralyzed by the war and by what they did, they're frightened of asserting themselves. And if you look at out of control Trump and the terror that a possible second Trump regime uh, is striking here. You look at Britain drifting off into the mid-Atlantic in its pathetic little, little dinghy waving its plastic flag. And you look at overbearing China and you look at disruptive Russia. And Germany can feel a scary place. And what it's got to do, in my view, and what it's still reluctant to do, is to step up. And it, and it can and should be predominantly through the EU. But it really can't wait for everybody to to dot every I and cross every T. And, you know, I conclude my book by saying someone's got to stand up for liberal democracy. Let's talk about Merkel then. She is a huge figure in the book. She's a huge figure in modern German history. In many respects, modern Germany is Merkel's Germany. How well did you know her in the early days? Because you were kind of crossing paths with her, weren't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I met her in 1990. It's one of those classic journal- journalistic sort of, you know, you miss an open goal, really. I mean, she was um, <laughs> <laughs> she was a, a lowly advisor to East Germany's very short-lived democratic government. And she came across as she is, really. You know, she's not charisma central, but she's got, you know, something to her. She's calm. She's effortlessly polite. She's direct. Somebody described her to me as having complete impulse control, and she does. Mm. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I sort of lost, you know, touch with her, thinking I was just a lowly advisor. Little did I know. And but you know, she rose pretty quickly. I mean, it's an interesting brief story. I mean, Helmut Kohl, who was the the Chancellor of West Germany, then United Germany, was uh, he sort of adopted her, but he adopted her in a very sort of un PC way he called her my girl but you know she got two cabinet positions including uh, the environment job she made her way up slowly people thought she was good and then she sort of stuck the knife in him and when he was involved in a scandal uh, a finance scandal uh, around the time of the millennium and that was pretty shocking to people you know that a girl could do that you know to, to the sort of dominant helmet cole but she didn't get the chancellorship she had to wait for another five years till 2005 and um, she has, you know, she started off by being incredibly green and really pushing Germany in that direction. Uh, she had to deal with the finance, financial crash, and she did it with sort of mixed results. She really infuriated the Greeks and caused, you know, Germany was sort of austerity central across the EU then. 
But really, I think she's come into her own with two crises, not just Corona, but the 2015 refugee crisis. I mean, she mm. basically let in one million of the world's most destitute, you know, partly because uh, she had no choice, but partly because the rest of Europe, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, but also Britain and France, just basically said, you know, none of our, you know, not our problem, get lost. And, you know, Germany has never been a particularly multicultural place and its record on immigration, uh, post-war record on immigration is mixed. You know, it had Turkish and Italian guest workers, but they were basically told to, to leg it once they'd finished their contracts. And then suddenly Germany lets in a million people. And yes, the AFD, the far right, have risen as a result. Yes, a lot of people are furious. I think the AFD has peaked. But it was a massive risk. But it's been, you know, a third of the people have got good jobs. There's really a sense of it beginning to work. Germany needed younger workers, but it has really changed the face of Germany. And she's actually an incredibly cautious politician. She's called, uh, the term is handy chancellor. Handy is the German word for mobile phone. She's always texting people to sort of double check whether they agree with, with something. But on this one, she just did it and took, took a huge risk. And, you know, that will be her legacy. And now she's dealt well with Corona. I think when she does go in a year's time, she will be remembered as, you know, one of the 21st centuries, the early 21st century's great leaders. There is that argument that the admission of refugees kind of got the ball rolling on the, you know, the, the authoritarian dominoes falling, as it were. And, and we saw a surprising and shocking resurgence of extreme right politics in Germany in, in the 2010s. You think AFD has peaked? What, what's your assessment of the penetration of, of actual Nazism into German political culture now? Even at the moment, there is quite a storm brewing over reports, or it's more than reports, evidence that there's a sort of WhatsApp group going, uh, doing the rounds of police forces, uh, regional police forces in Germany. And in one of the states, 47 police uh, officers are under investigation for belonging to it, in which they sort of have Nazi memorabilia and they talk about um, Syrians and gas chambers. So there is absolutely a, a vicious, dangerous underbelly. I don't personally, uh, although I think it's a really interesting area, subscribe to the view that there's something intrinsic in Germanness that leads to this kind of thinking. Uh, you know, I think all countries, all European countries, you see it in America with the far right and the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazism, every country has got it. I suppose the difference is, you're right, every country in the world has these tendencies, but Germany is the only country in the world that has defined itself against Nazism. And we actually had um, Susan Neiman on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. She's in the book, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. Talking about how absolutely intrinsic, particularly to the DDR, the idea of the, of, of anti-fascism. It's a, it's a hotly debated thing, isn't it? Because people don't want to be making a case for the DDR at all. It was a repressive state. How existential is it, though, to, to, to Germany's idea of itself, the idea that Nazism can come back in the one country in the world that disavowed it and actually was destroyed and had to rebuild itself entirely anew because of Nazism? I mean, that's got to be, a, that, that's got to get the Germans, you know, at, at a very deep place, surely. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Susan, by the way, I think is great. I mean, the, the central thing about her book was kind of comparing Germany's ability to deal with Nazism with America's refusal to do it on slavery and Britain yeah. one on, on colonialism, um, which I think is a really, really fascinating topic. I'm not on the same page with her in her assessment of East Germany in which she, you know, anti-fascism was, in my view, in East Germany, just a government slogan, and it was um, an excuse for Soviet dictatorship, because anybody who opposed Soviet dictatorship was was an unreconstructed fascist. Uh, which was the anti-fascist protective rampart. Well, exactly. The Berlin Wall. Yeah. Known as. So, yeah, I, I, I don't buy into that interesting, though it is, theory. The reason there is more in East Germany now is simply because, well, two things. One, um, a sense of grievance, some of it's real, some of it perceived. But also, you know, there is an entire population under 30 years old that has never known democracy because the very old ones lived under Nazism. And then uh, the, the Soviets and, and East Germany um, was formed. And it, in some ways, is a deformed political culture that will take time. But at the same time, they also feel they've been treated disdainfully uh, by, by the Westerners. And so that's led to this. And as ever, it's manifested in anti-migrant behavior. But yeah, no, I mean, Germany is completely defined by uh, its Nazi history, by, you know, itself. And it, you know, it didn't happen, this whole overcoming history didn't happen immediately. People think, oh, well, Germany was sort of transformed in 1945. No, it wasn't. I mean, basically, the third generation were absolutely hell-bent on rebuilding the country physically, but also economically, hugely helped by the Americans, the Marshall Plan, and, and in a smaller way, the Brits, and rebuilt the structures. But it really took the left-wing revolutions of 1968 the protest movement, the sort of, what did you do in the war, mummy and daddy? You know, and people yeah. found out some pretty extraordinary things that had been re uh, suppressed by their parents. So that was a big moment. And I would also say 1990 in German unification. I mean, the extent to which you just get a sense almost that Germany, an old country in one way, but in another way, it's actually only really 30 years old in terms of fixed borders, reasonably at ease with itself. And it feels it has to always cling to never again because it's obsessed with its own demons. And that is both good because it's, it's really important never to forget, but it's also problematic because it almost becomes a comfort blanket for Germans not to face up to the harsh realities. And if you are to be a leader in the world, not the leader, but a leader, then you enter into many gray areas and many tough and unpleasant decisions. And you can't do that if you always say, oh, no, 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 we can't get involved, we can't get involved because we're too awful. Um, you know, that's a very sort of passive approach to, to, you know, to the world. Just in closing, then, you talked about the horror and disdain uh, that Germans have for what we in Britain are doing now with the, the entire Brexit project. British politicians view Germany with a mix of envy and irritation. Yeah. You know, some of them are what was seeing the EU as a way to control German power, and now we're, we've left the EU. Yeah. Um, why do we care so much about Germany yet refuse to emulate them? Why do we refuse to look at our own past and our own sclerotic social and political structures the way the Germans did? Now, it's really interesting. I mean, you have to get, I think you need a psychiatrist, a psychologist to answer <laughs> that, or maybe a sociologist. I mean, it's not just Germany. Britain is obsessed with its 
past glories. It cannot move on. It's incapable of moving on. There was a brief moment around the time of the millennium when ever so tentatively and pretty much unsuccessfully, Tony Blair tried to reform political structures, constitutional reform, and other things. I mean, I think the Germans, there's also a softer side. It's not just disdain and sort of contempt. They are really, really sad because they look at Britain in many ways. Well, they they absolutely admire what Britain did um, in terms of getting Germany back on its feet. And the German press is a sort of product of Britain. Actually, the really amazing constitution was, was predominantly British and American lawyers. So they see how good Britain was and can be. And in the EU, we agreed on more things probably with Germany than we did with any other country. So they're sort of bewildered. And then they thought, okay, the 2016 referendum, that's bad enough. But okay, this terrible shock has happened, but order will prevail. And they couldn't get their heads around the idea that if you have a a ballot paper with two questions, that you do no scenario planning for the other question. And the chaos, you know, in Germany, if they had had this referendum, not that they would have done, but if they had, you know, they would have had an all-party committee starting the next day, getting consensus, reporting back in six months' time, everything very sort of meticulously done, and, you know, then proper discussions with the EU were very respectable and respectful and would have come up with some sort of conclusion, which would have been worse than the status quo, but better, they just can't understand the sort of sclerotic chaos that Britain has got itself mm-hmm. into, which COVID has just confirmed. And the whole referendum and the the, the worst period after the referendum, the, the even more rancorous post-referendum period, it's shot through with Second World War. Leavers can't stop going on about spitfires. Do you think we're ever going to get over this? I think there's an optimistic side to all of this. Um, and actually... If, as you, as I've done, you look back at tabloid stuff, um, sometimes manifested through football, going back even into the 90s, it was always, you know, two world wars and one World Cup type stuff. And, and you know, I, I'm old enough to remember some of the, the anti-German songs that kids used to sing. And stuff. None of that happens now. I mean, it might happen in some sort of weird Looney Tune sort of yeah. you know, pub somewhere, but it doesn't happen in mainstream politics or society and there's a hell of a lot of brits who actually live here visit here admire it and i mean in a way the eu became the proxy for anti-german feeling and anti-french feeling but it didn't become i mean you get the odd sort of brexiteering mp who kind of talked about you know who won the war anyway and you know i was reading even sammy wilson was talking about east germany when it come, came to COVID. i mean there's a lot of sort of nonsense but it's really a fringe activity and i think one of the tragedies is that Britain was beginning to come to terms with Germany and to see it for what it is and to appreciate it. And I do think the younger generation, and the one bit that worries me is that our Brits are not learning languages anymore and German teaching's pretty much gone down the toilet in Britain. But, you know, there's a lot of Brits who interact with Germany and I'm an optimist. I mean, it will take a, a good long while but I think beginning to appreciate Germany, and I think COVID has, has helped in this, will alongside the, the kind of moving forward of the next generation, 
lead to a different view about Germany and Europe. But I mean, it's not going to happen in the next decade. But you know, hopefully, it will happen at some point. I'm trying to, I'm trying to give listeners something cheerful to to go on through. <laughs> but you know, because it's not all miserable. And you know, there's a lot of Brits here in Berlin and across Germany who love the place, who are completely integrated, doing really cool creative stuff, tech stuff, all kinds of stuff. Germans' bewilderment with Britain is only with a certain type of Britain. Next year, we could enter into quite a contentious relationship with the rest of Europe, and particularly Germany, that could last for quite a long time if we don't get a deal of some sort. Will we be rivals, do you think, into the future? We obsess with Brexit more than they do. They've got over it. Mm. They just think we're a bit of a sort of, you know, awkward uncle that will just have to be dealt with. And, you know, <laughs> you know they'll just deal with it as it comes. You know, Johnson and Theresa May tried to sort of pick off European leaders and try to sort of get them to come onto Britain's side. None of them did. The 27 remained extraordinarily united. And, you know, they don't, you know, yeah, I mean, German business will suffer a bit, exchanges will suffer, but, you know, we will suffer far more than Germany will. You know, kind of, Germany's adopted a, a sort of studied indifference to the whole thing now and just sort of say, okay, well, you know, whatever happens, happens, and we'll just get on with it. But, you know, so it's not a question, I don't think, of any kind of great animus and difficulty i just think it's it's opportunities lost well i'm going to cling to uh Kraftwerk and jürgen klopp and german <laughs> techno and think about the nice things john kampfner that's been really interesting and really illuminating thank you so much for joining us uh why the germans do it better notes from a grown-up country is out now from atlantic books and i recommend it highly thanks for joining us john thanks very much really enjoyed it Listeners, remember there's a new daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with the full panel shows on Wednesdays. You can get them early and without adverts when you back us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>